to the Bible Feed podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Paul Davenport, and uh, welcome back to the Bible Feed podcast. We're going to continue in this uh, episode exploring some ideas that are, are similar to um, to what we looked at last time. We considered the concept of heaven uh, in our last episode. So we so we looked up and we imagined ourselves as an ancient uh, Israelite looking up to the heavens and thinking about, about the dwelling place of God. But we actually found that heaven is not so much about a, a location, a physical location, but it's much more about a relationship with God and, uh, and a relationship with God in particular through Jesus Christ. So this episode, uh, we're going to start by looking down and we're thinking about where is hell. And I suspect that when we do that, we will find that hell perhaps isn't so much about a physical location, uh, but is about something else. But I'm joined by Dan Weatherall, who's going to um, help us through this uh, this subject and understand it from a biblical point of view. So welcome, Dan. Hi, Paul. This subject can be quite um, quite disturbing in some <laughs> ways uh, because the... Um, you know the, the way the kind of images that hell conjures up in in the imagination uh, are not particularly pleasant. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, as we think about the sort of baggage that comes with the word hell and that term, I was in a um, in an art gallery a, a few weeks ago. As a, there's a, a lovely Georgian house in in the Warwickshire countryside, a place called Compton Verney, and uh, it's it's now an art gallery. And uh, as uh, we were wandering around this art gallery, there's a, a picture in the corner of one of the rooms. It's not very big, but it caught my eye, got closer to it. It's only, I don't know, 12 inches square. Um, and the title of the of the painting is Descent into Limbo uh, by a Dutch artist, Peter Hughes. It was a picture of the most horrific <laughs> images of kind of distorted human forms merged with animal forms and suffering all sorts of torment and torture and being boiled in cauldrons and in fires and sawn into bits it was it, it was really horrific and unfortunately that's the sort of image that you know paintings coming from um a few centuries ago uh, tend to get associated with this this idea of hell but yeah hopefully we're going to move beyond that yeah yeah, it's whenever sort of I think of the word hell, you just you just think of fire that never goes out, don't you? Unquenchable fire and mm. yeah, sort of a, a fiery place of just incredible torment. Just part of the idea, probably. I mean, because the, there's lots of um, there's lots of baggage, isn't there, behind all of this? Um, and mm. partly um, a sense of perhaps churches or the church establishment and or p- political institutions, as they were part of the church at the time in sort of medieval times and so on. Have maybe used the concept of hell as a as a or fear of hell as a as a way of controlling. Yeah, as you say, it's linked with fire and an eternity that is burning yeah. for this eternal torment yeah. idea, which which is a difficult thing to get get your head around in connection with with God, with a loving God. Yeah. So there there is an issue there. That, yeah. That needs sort sorting out. Yeah, there's there's definitely an issue and an issue with how we understand God and how we understand God through Jesus, uh, Jesus, you know, one who who was full of grace and truth. So there's mercy and, and justice, you know, you know, where is the justice in in tormenting someone 
for eternity, who was a finite being who committed a finite number of sins, if you, mm. if you want to sort of put it in an equation sort of term, that it's troubled a lot of people. It creates a moral issue. There's, there's perhaps just a little hint about where some of this, this baggage comes from. I, I was reading um, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, and just by chance came across a reference. He was talking about the period of history around the ninth century when Anglo-Saxons were being converted to Christianity. And, uh, and he just, he says, I'll just quote the, the short passage. He says, the rhythms of life and death and the cycle of the year proved no less adaptable to the purposes of the Anglo-Saxon church. So it was that hell, and that's H-E-L, which was the pagan underworld where all the dead were believed to dwell, became, in the writings of monks, the abode of the damned. So there's a little hint there that the kind of concepts that we're starting out with here have come from a pagan mindset and have sort of been adopted as a mm. way of um, integrating in, into um, into Christian society. As indeed lots of other things, you know, were adopted, weren't they? So we know that that, that happened. We've talked a little bit about that, haven't we? Mm. Um, the soul and, and things like that. Okay. So, so just with that kind of thinking about some of the baggage attached to it, clearly there's a long and complicated cultural history attached to this English word that we ended up with, with hell. So, so what we really need to do and what we want to do in the next half an hour or so is just break it down, go back to the basics and kind of build it up in manageable chunks. Yeah. And, uh, and you're going to help us do that. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> what, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, so I, I think the way of doing it is, um, is looking at the Old Testament first and just really looking at the words used. So, you know, if we if we do that and go to the Old Testament, first of all, Old Testament, of course, being written in, okay. in Hebrew, it's the word shil. Okay. Yeah, when you look for that word, I mean, we find it in in the King James Version, for example, you'll see about half and half it's translated hell or the grave. But in the later versions, like the English Standard Version, hell seems to have dropped, been dropped as a, as a word that's used. In the ESV, for example, once it's translated grave, but the rest of the times, 64 times, it's, trans it's just left a shield which is not terribly helpful. No. I mean, it kind of tells a story, doesn't it? It, it tells a story of ambiguity at the very least, that, you know, that there's a there's a mm. question mark over what this means and they've just sat on the fence, I suppose, or just decided, left it up to the reader, which you, you're right, it's not, that's not translating, but at least it alerts us to the, the problem there. You know, when, when, you, when you, do, you sort of do a survey of that word and where it appears... You do find, I mean, that, that conception that you started off with in that painting, we, we have in our minds I, that it's the wicked that end up in hell. So we should expect that the mm. wicked people should be in Sheol. And you definitely get that. So you, you get, for example, in, in uh, Psalm 9, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forgot God. So the wicked are going to be in Sheol. But, but when you carry on looking, you find out that the faithful have that prospect of being in Sheol as well. Um, so just a few psalms on Psalm 16 and verse 10. So this, you know, this is the faithful psalmist who says, "You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption." So there's there's the prospect of him going there. You know, he's concerned about that. Mm. Um, he's concerned about okay. him losing his life effectively. It doesn't seem to uh, differentiate or discriminate between good bad people. No, no, pe people who die end up in Sheol, basically. And in fact, that verse in Psalm 16 is referred to Jesus. In the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think um, hopefully we'll, we'll get time to look at that in a, in a few moments. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. So so Sheol is a place 
a conception of a place where good people and wicked people, in inverted commas, both end up. You know, it's not discriminatory. Mm-hmm. You then also find is that in the in the conception of this word, people can't be delivered from the power of shield. So once you're there, that's it. You, you know, you, there's no no one can can redeem their brother and bring them back. You know, that's that's the sort of phrase that we get. And then once you're there, it sounds like it's a pretty terrible place because there's no way to to remember God. You can't praise God. That's in Psalm 6, for example. And then you get, it's worth perhaps having a look in Ecclesiastes 9. So this piece of wisdom literature that's full of doom and gloom and, you know, very much... um, pondering the meaning of life and concluding that a lot of it is pointless which is raises its own its own questions yeah the key key word from ecclesiastes is uh, vanity that's right meaningless that's sort of like a vapor yeah that's right so so listen to this then so the preacher in ecclesiastes says whatever your hand finds to do do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you are going it's very <laughs> very upbeat okay so that's a reflection. I think the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a, re- a reflection on the prospect of the fact that we all face death. You know, you know that's that's it. We're all going to end up in Sheol. Mm. And death itself ends up being paralleled with, with Sheol. Probably one of the closest examples of that is back in the Psalms. Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit verse 9 what profit is there in my death if i go down to the pit will the dust praise you will it tell of your faithfulness so there's lots of things going on in that psalm but the only thing we need to mm-hmm. sort of think about is the fact that going down to sheol or the pit is somewhere where you can't praise god you you know your existence is pretty much ended and that's paralleled that that is death basically that's what it's saying okay it's a psalm about you know god delivering from death which which is something we'll think about in a bit. So, so that's that's a quick survey of okay this word sheol, which in many versions is now not translated. But by looking at the context and the way it's used, you can establish a bit of a bit about what it means. It doesn't. It's not a place for wicked. It's a. It's not discriminating between the wicked uh, and and the good. And you can't return from it. And it's sort of equivalent death. When you look up the word Sheol in, in lexicons and Bible dictionaries, it uses phrases like, uh, this is the underworld or the abode of the dead, um, a, a waste, a void, a place under the earth where the dead reside, and, and things like that. So that sounds a little bit more like not just death, but a, a place of some kind of spiritual darkness rather than the grave or a, a hole in the ground. Mm. So so maybe we've not quite got to the full meaning of that yet, or there's a, a little bit more to say. Yeah, it, it's um, it's interesting that previously Shell was translated a number of times as the grave, whereas now it, it you know seems not to be. Mm. And that's probably because whilst that, that's an approximation to the word, it doesn't, it, because of what you've said, it, it's not a, a full, it doesn't capture the full essence of what the word means. Mm. For example, there's another, there's another passage in Ezekiel. So it's Ezekiel chapter 32. It's really, it's quite an amusing chapter, actually. It's all about uh, Pharaoh. It's a poetic description against pharaoh you know an oracle against pharaoh okay. and it describes him being killed and going down to sheol 
And uh, as he goes down to Sheol, he's sort of welcomed by all the other fallen leaders, the fallen rulers and all the other people there. And that sort of welcome him down here saying, uh, you know, great to see you. And uh, but but clearly it's not it's not meant to be taken as this is going to happen to that particular person. And he's going to experience that consciously because all throughout it, you get verbs like sleep and rest. So interwoven among that poetic description is again is presenting an underworld. For sure, it is, but in a way of basically showing that there's no return. You know, they're there, they're in the underworld, they're there, they're sleeping, they're resting, and and sometimes for for amusement's sake, we imagine them welcoming the people who join them. But you know, that that's for our for our, for our amusement and for our sort of way of showing the certainty of of them being down there. Right. It's it's the death state that's being talked about. So Shiel sort of is equivalent to the death state rather than being it is equivalent to the to the grave. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And, and I'm just thinking of how we use the English word grave in in that it obviously has a primary meaning of the hole in the ground. But we could also use that word by association with that to mean death. It seems like with the word Sheol, layered on top of that are these poetic depictions of what it means to, to emphasize and reinforce and dramatically portray the lack of hope and possibility of returning from that that state from uh, from a natural point of view. Yeah, that's and that's the uh, that's the critical thing about Sheol in the Old Testament is that if you get there or when you get there, because you're all going to end up there according to Ecclesiastes. When you get there, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm painting a broad brush because, of course, you get ideas of resurrection in Daniel and so on, and and that's something we'll think about in a, in a moment. And yeah. when we turn to the New Testament, but but in terms of without God, without any hope that God can give of restoring your life once you're in Sheol, that's it and you mm. you effectively in oblivion and, and all all the things that you would associate normally with consciousness are gone yeah such as you know thoughts you know that passage in ecclesiastes there's no work or thought or wisdom or knowledge all of those things to do with consciousness so it's an unconscious state that's right so is that is that the old testament word yep is that the only word used is it time to move into the new testament yeah i think so yeah, so in the New Testament, uh, we find a couple of words, primarily a couple of words. So the first one is Hades. That's probably one that's probably a bit more familiar. Of course, we're in Greek now in the New Testament. Okay. So the Greek word Hades, it's only, it's only used a handful of times, actually, isn't it? Ten times Okay. in the New Testament. So it looks like the, the ESV, again, have, have done the same thing. So they, they have translated it as hell once, and the rest of times they've uh, kept Hades in there. So they're, they're sitting on the fence again. Right, and left us to uh, draw our own conclusions. It's, give, it's given us a podcast material, you see. That's why doing that. We've Absolutely. got to explain it. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the King James translated it hell all the time. So this word in the New Testament, we need to think about what that means. And I I think one of the best places to look at, you, you alluded to it earlier, was uh, when Peter quoted Acts, uh, sorry, Peter quoted Psalm 16, and he did that in Acts chapter 2. So in Psalm 16, it talked about um, you, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Um, and in Acts chapter 2 and verse 27, Peter, talking about Jesus, is quoting Psalm 16 and he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So you can see how Hades is equivalent to Sheol. Okay. And in all sort of practical ways, it, it effectively is an, an equivalent 
to Sheol. It, it's sort of saying the same thing. It's being used in the same place. I think the Septuagint, so the Greek t- translation of the Old Testament, uses the word Hades yeah. pretty much every time the word Sheol occurs. So yeah, you, you've uh, effectively got an equivalent term to some extent. So what's interesting here is, is that Peter's talking about Jesus who died on the cross, was put in the in the tomb, and then on the third day was raised from the dead. And he's applying this passage about Sheol, Hades, and applying that to Jesus, who was alive and then he died. And according to everything we know about from the rest of the, the scriptures, it was unconscious and you know not alive. And then on the third day, he was res- his life was restored. He was resurrected. So, so this you know idea of sleeping in the in the dust of the earth, except until you're raised and delivered from Hades by God through resurrection, that that makes sense. Okay, so and that's that's really useful because we've got a, a clear link there between Old Testament and New Testament, and then in the New Testament application, a clear physical example of what it means to be in Sheol slash Hades and what it means to come out of. Mm. that state of of being dead. That's fine, but I have a question. Hades, as as you said, you know, it might be a word that's a bit more familiar. And it is when you think about Greek mythology and some of the uh, Greek tales. And Hades in that Greek context seems to be absolutely linked with a place where the dead go and have some form of conscious existence. Um, I, I mean, just you know the example of the, uh, the the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, and Orpheus goes down into the underworld to um, to try and rescue Eurydice, who he's fallen in love with. So the concept is there attached to that Greek word. You know, we said there's baggage attached to the English word hell. Well, there's baggage attached to the Greek word Hades. So when the New Testament writers use that word, or when the translators of the of the Old Testament use that word. Surely they would know that that baggage Mm. is attached to it and people would associate those kind of things with it. Does that mean that those ideas should be associated with it? It's a fair question. I suppose we're making an assumption that the very Hellenistic Greek tales and culture and so on were transferred along with the fact that they spoke Greek in Judea, you know, or was it just the language? I mean, these they, they were still Jews, of course, and still read the, the Old Testament. So, so it would seem more likely that the Old Testament is going to be the backdrop to what they're saying than than the Greek mythology and the the Greek tales like Orpheus and and so on. Um, you get another time Hades is used is in Revelation at the start of Revelation chapter one. So Jesus is talking and he says, he's the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So that's that's another interesting passage that is basically paralleling death mm. with Hades, which is just like we saw with, with Sheol. And it, it's this, this really brilliant metaphor of Jesus with a key to Hades and death. So what does that mean? Does that mean he can go down there like Orpheus and, and unlock the door and let people out who've been saying, great, we've been waiting a long time for you? Well, no, the, the key that he's got is the fact that he died, but he's, he's living again. You know, he is the one that has, has been dead, that was lying in Sheol or in Hades, and God has resurrected him. So he's broken that. And, you know, other parts of the scripture talk about him being given authority to, to resurrect those on the last day. So I, th- I think that probably shows the, the backdrop or how they're using this term uh, more than the, sort of the Greek tales. The, the only other thing about 
about that the you know the tales of orpheus that they're, they're very they're poetic they're they're epics aren't they they're amazing stories and yet the the point of them so so orpheus doesn't get his lover back and you know at the last minute he, he he does the wrong thing and she can't come out of hades after all and you know he's overcome with grief and and so on and and so what what is that story about it's a story that's emphasizing the fact and making you face up to the fact that you have to deal with grief when people are gone they're gone yes there's a there's a mythology attached to it, a little bit like Pharaoh going down to Sheol and, and being laughed at by everyone there, saying mm. that you know they're, they're welcome, welcoming him there as well. It's not meant to be a literal depiction, and I don't I don't know whether anyone knows whether people thought that you know you could actually go somewhere called Hades and lead people out. I don't think they probably did really. No, I, I mean you're right. It's a it was entertainment and you know a story with with that meaning as you say yeah So you mentioned there was um, more than one word in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. So, so the next one is is Gehenna. It's interesting. Just before we get to that, how that we started with that terrible picture of devils tormenting people in in uh, in limbo, and mm. that you know one one layer of hell, and as all these popular conceptions of fire and and all sorts. And yet, what we've seen so far has been really nothing of the sort, has it, actually? There's there's not been any fire involved. No fire and unconsciousness in death and the break from Hades or Sheol is resurrection. So, we know, we're talking, talking a completely different story so far. Now, Gehenna is a word that might take us a little bit closer to those those conceptions. So we need to think about this a little bit more. So Gehenna is used so in the in the New Testament, of course, that we're, t- we're talking about. Uh, it's translated hell in the King James and the ESV at uh, all, all times. So again, it's only twelve times. So we're not talking a major concept or a major word in the in the New Testament. Um, it's actually it's actually a Hebrew word that's been trans- transliterated from the Hebrew into into the Greek. So, so that's that's interesting in it in itself, and it means it literally means um, a valley of Hinnom, so or the valley of Hinnom. This is this is a place we're talking about, a place near Jerusalem. Okay. So that's that's kind of where it's come from. Should we look at um, one of the passages where it is? So Mark nine and do forty three to forty seven. So Mark chapter nine verses forty three to forty seven. So here we go. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Right, there we go. So we've got some fire, finally, which is great. We have, and it's eternal fire by the sound well, of it. Well, yeah, unquenchable, which might be a little bit different than eternal. Okay. So yeah, this, I mean, you can, as we just read that, face value with the imagery of those paintings and the last 2,000 years of development of, of Christian theology in mind, we'll read that and think, yeah, that does sound like there's there's a place. Hmm. And we better watch out because we might get thrown into it if we're, you know, if we if we sin, if we do, if we turn away from Christ, and and so on. 
So that's what it sounds like. But as I said, so Gehenna is, you know, literally was a place. And there's there's been various sort of theories about what it means and where it's come from and what it sort of signifies. One idea was that Gehenna was the town's or the city's rubbish dump, and there was always a fire burning there. But actually, it doesn't look like there's a lot of evidence for that at all. It's, um, I think the evidence for that is very, very late. But we find Gehenna in the Old Testament. So the, be- the best thing to do would be to, to have a look and see, A, what happened there, and B, what, what was said about it. Because that, again, like we've said, the backdrop to the words of Jesus, the backdrop to the New Testament is their, well, it's their scriptures, the, the Old Testament. They, they had that and they, they read it and they, they thrived on it. So in the Old Testament, in the period of times of the kings, uh, the, the Valley of Hinnom was used by kings for some really terrible things, which was child sacrifice, passing, their, passing unwanted children, babies, through the fire in some form of, of worship to, to gods. Um, so, so really awful things um, happening. And that, you know, that became a place of that happening. So we get, you know, King Ahaz doing that and Manasseh as well. You'll find that in places like 2 Chronicles 33. Okay. So that that's repeated a few times. And be- so the Valley of Hinnom becomes known as this terrible place. And then it gets picked up by the prophets. So the prophets of of Yahweh, the prophets of God, were very unhappy with that. And so, for example, Jeremiah talks um, against that practice and against that fact and uses the Valley of Hinnom as a sort of prophetic judgment oracle, or as part of his prophetic judgment oracle. Okay. So let's we have a look at that passage. So Jeremiah 7. Okay, Jeremiah 7. So verse 30 to 33. Okay. Here we go then, Jeremiah 7, verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. Yeah, there we go. So it, it talks about passing or burning their sons and their daughters in the fire in this place. So that's that terrible practice of child sacrifice. But what Jeremiah says is this judgment is coming for that, and you're basically going to have a valley full of dead bodies. And there's going to be no room to, to to bury them, basically. It goes on to say about the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And it's this shocking um, picture of, you know, people who have been judged and they've been judged because they've done wicked things. So, you know, this is a place or this is a picture or being used as a metaphor for judgment on the wicked people. That So that sounds like, just thinking about how prophetic language works and the sort of imagery that the the prophets employ that he's picking up on you have done these terrible things to people and as a result that will come back on you Mm. and using the image of what they've done to people as the depiction of of how they will be judged for that and how that will will come back on them yeah that's that's definitely right and it's a it's a metaphor for the certainty of their judgment and the fact that it's a permanent judgment. Yeah. And and notice how that, you know, it talks about dead bodies being strewn in this this valley. It's not talking about them being tormented 
in this valley or anything like that. It, it's a picture of, an, of annihilation, isn't it? A picture of um, being um, completely getting the just reward for their terrible crimes yeah. in this place of the, the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. So, so when Jesus says Gehenna to a Jewish audience, they're going to have this sort of passage in you know, brought to mind. They are the Valley of Hinnom and the the association with you know that's that's a place where people did terrible things and as a result terrible things would happen yep. to them from which they could never return. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting that the the translators of the New Testament have translated that hell or hellfire. They mm. they haven't done what they did with Geol and Hades and just left it as Gehenna. Yeah. Um, and let us figure out that it's this place associated with with these things. It isn't a footnote in the ESV that it's Gehenna. So they, they've done that at least. But yeah, that is interesting. I don't know if any other translation has sort of transliterated it and kept it as Gehenna. So, so Jesus, yeah, so you say Jesus using this term, people would understand what he means. They definitely would when he quotes, he quotes Isaiah 66. So the last the last verse, the last um, few phrases of the big book of Isaiah, the big prophecy of Isaiah. It's, it's a funny, funny passage. It's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, this you know time when uh, it's wonderful and God's justice has come and God's kingdom is there and everything. And then you know there's going to be all flesh will come and worship before me, declares the Lord. Then the last verse, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh, and it's a it's a confusing picture to us. Um, but <laughs> yeah. the idea is that not that people are literally in new creation going to uh, spend a you know a day trip down to go and have a look at people burning in a in a valley anywhere. It, it's showing the permanence of the death of people who are judged. You know that's that's the picture, isn't it? But you notice in that phrase that. He talks about the worm shall not die, the fire shall not be quenched. Uh, that's exactly what Jesus was quoting from. So he refers to Gehenna, which we saw in Jeremiah. He's quoting this passage here, and it's all about people who've been judged, and there's no hope of them ever returning. So that, that I think that's what what Gehenna is is really trying to convey. It, it is so. It is conveying a, a time of judgment. It's saying that there will be judgment. But there's nothing in it that is talking about being tormented forever and ever. And it's emphasising the prospect of not being able to r- return from that. So it isn't perhaps with Sheol and Hades, it's, it's just you know the natural end of human life is in the death state. And normally speaking, aside from resurrection, there is no return from that. But this is adding a layer of judgment, as in from God's point of view, it is right that you your life ends and you have no yep. prospect of returning from that because of a moral component to it, if you like, mm-hmm. because of, of things that people have done. Okay, and, and there is, you know, there is lots of mentions of fire and burning in there. But, and, and when you get to the re- to Revelation, uh, you have the, the lake of fire. Mm. So it's, it's, it's perhaps not surprising that some of those ideas have become mingled with perhaps some of those pagan views of the underworld that Tom Holland referred to mm-hmm. in, uh, in Anglo-Saxon thinking and have found their way into a popular conception. Is there anything else 
to add on those those words. I mean, the only thing just to add to Gehenna is the fact that um, you, you get Jesus talking about how that the the body and soul are destroyed in in Gehenna. Yeah. So whatever whatever you think about the word soul, and you, you did a whole episode on that, didn't you? And effectively, it's the whole life. Yeah. But even even if you think it's some kind of separate thing from from the person or you know is the person and it's different from the body and so on um it gets destroyed in the end it doesn't talk about something continuing forever being tormented so so even in the very sort of straightforward view of what jesus is saying we're not looking at a picture of torment we're looking at a picture of annihilation so i think you summarized it well in that you've got sheol and hades as you know the natural death state and then the hope of coming out of that the way of escape is resurrection but there is a prospect of those judged in the future by Jesus and finding themselves judged of um, annihilation, of oblivion, of, of death forever. Okay, so let's, um, let's move on to a, a different aspect of it. Uh, the ideas that, that we've talked about both in this one and the, and the talking about concept of heaven and, and when we looked at the soul, um, we're describing ideas that when when we're taking them from, from the Bible are are somewhat different, perhaps, to to how many Christians would conceive of those things. And so, when when we're kind of drawing those conclusions from this biblical evidence, are, are we on our own here? Are, are we plowing a lonely furrow <laughs> of uh, of biblical interpretation and and kind of going off into the fringes? What are other people thinking about this? Yeah, so we're, we're definitely what we're saying. We're definitely not alone. Um, it's definitely right to say that. You know, a hundred years ago, the majority view in Christianity would have been, and maybe still would be, it would be a view of the typical hell of eternal fiery torment and conscious torment at that. But you know, that you can look all around at theologians, scholars, pastors, and and people in all sorts of different parts of the Christian world and find people who are who are similarly troubled by the moral implications of a eternal mm. conscious torment view and they also are persuaded by the biblical evidence like we've looked at so i don't know uh, old testament scholar john goldingay in one of his old testament theology volumes says that death is an end to my own activity it means an end to awareness has a bit of a paragraph about what death is and according to the old testament which fits with what we we've, we've said uh, there was a really key scholar edward fudge his book called the fire that consumes I think it was in 1982 when it was first published and that basically sets the case for what's become known as annihilation which is you know the view effectively that we've we've said he has some differences from from what i think but in in essence he's he's he goes through the the biblical evidence and comes to the conclusions very similar to what we we've, we've said his, his big thing about the fire is that the fire is a consuming thing and it's unquenchable which is means it burns up the fuel so the people who are thrown in the fire, metaphorically, are all burned up and they can't, the fire isn't put out, it's unquenchable and it's not put out and, and then when there's no fuel left, that's it. So it's not eternal fire, like, like, uh, like you, you said earlier, it's, you know, it's not fire necessarily that burns forever. So it's unquenchable from the point of view of the fuel. Yes, that's right. Not from the point of view of someone outside watching. Yeah, you know, that he majors on that point a lot. He says, throughout the Bible, from the first appearance of the phrase until its last, unquenchable fire 
always denotes fire that is not capable of being extinguished and is therefore irresistible. Um, it talks about how Jesus says, uh, Jesus will burn up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. That's precisely what unquenchable fire does. So he underscores that point there. And there's a lot in his book. Okay. E- even the late John Stott, so a really sort of prominent conservative preacher in the evangelical community, he says, he's talking about the, the wicked and he says that there's no rest for them day and night. And then he says, I do not myself think that the anxious question whether the nature of hell is an eternal conscious torment or an ultimate eternal annihilation can be settled by a simple appeal to these sentences. And he's talking about some of the passages in Revelation. And he says, for one thing, we need to keep reminding ourselves that the content of Revelation is a symbolic vision, not literal reality, which is you know, really interesting. And he, he kind of sits on the fence a bit, but he's he's known for going towards annihilation so no we definitely we're definitely not on our own there's there's lots of other people out there saying these things about hell for the reasons we've talked about okay that's that's really interesting so let's let's just try and wrap up and bring a, a few threads together from from some of the things that that we've covered in this episode of the, the one on heaven and the one on soul because those three subjects are clearly linked and and when you take the popular but maybe less popular than it was Christian notion of an immortal soul that either goes to heaven or hell um, as, as different places with different experiences. You know, those three ideas are connected and we've unpicked each of those. And so th- I would expect, therefore, that what we've come to as conclusions about the meaning of soul and heaven and hell would form a different but coherent linked up picture. So so can you help us kind of tie together mm. what uh, what we've concluded from those different explorations of those concepts? Yeah, so it does all tie together and they are of course all linked. So when we looked at the word soul and what it means and what how the Bible um, understands the nature of people, we realized that it's talking about the whole life, the whole being as it were and and that people are mortal. You know, they don't have something in them which carries on after death. That's not part of, of the biblical depiction. Mm. So, so if if that's what we are, um, mortal people, but but in God's image, you know, called to live a higher calling, called to accept the rule of God, the rule of of heaven. You know, it makes sense that if if we don't have some kind of immortal soul within us, it makes sense that we're not expecting to to float off to heaven when we die or anything like that and therefore the whole the conception of 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 heaven being god's domain and how that we ought to be raised into that now in a in a sense and how you know we're looking for heaven and earth to come back together be be united that's what we want and and it's of course through jesus that that we do that we're not in fear of uh, a god who is you know looking to throw us into hell and throw us into fiery uh, torment forever um, because again, it doesn't fit with what we know we are. We're we're people who will whose existence will end when we, when we die. So death is the enemy. Death's the real enemy here, and it's Jesus who has the key to death, the key to death and Hades, the death and Sheol. You know, the death state can be broken because he's been resurrected, and he can take us from that because he can elevate us to the to the you know position of being in a relationship with with God. You know, to live in the world in his kingdom in new creation in restored world um, just as god intended so in in a summary in a really sort of high level summary that's the biblical picture of what our lives are what we what we're intended for 
and what we need to escape from sin and death, which is really it's it's changed it completely actually hasn't it from the conceptions of of being living in fear of of putting one foot wrong and then you might end up in in hell or if you're lucky you might be able to spend a bit of time in purgatory and we, you know we're, we're talking totally different worldviews aren't we yeah and that, and that's what I, I I sort of picked up as you were describing that that it's it's not a fear focused view it's a it's actually a love and forgiveness and acceptance into a relationship with God focus mm. that comes through much more strongly with the biblical meanings of soul and, and, and heaven and hell. It seems also to, you know, coming back to the point that we have started with, it resolves the moral issue of, of God inflicting eternal torment on, mm. on finite beings. And because there is a fundamental problem with that in that when we think about how God has shown himself to us through Jesus, that's just not the kind of character that comes through in Jesus. And so it's, there's a there's a fundamental tension, conflict, yeah. you know, a jarring conflict with that yeah. presentation of God through Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's, it talks about Jesus being full of grace and truth, doesn't it, in uh, John chapter 1, which is a really good way of summarizing the character of God from Exodus 34 and how... Um, th- that's really interesting there because it's talking about mercy but truth as well and which is justice isn't it that's that sort of thing and mm. it's you know the, the opposite of the the fiery hell view is a, a universalism which is that oh we're all going to kind of end up redeemed in the end you know we might have to go through various forms of, of redemption or you might burn for a little bit but then you're redeemed and there's lots of different views of that uh, and and that's really that's um a very tempting view to take and we kind of do want everyone to be saved and everyone redeemed and god even himself says that you know he he's not willing that any should perish but but he's really he really values justice and truth as well as you can see and interestingly in between those two extremes of fiery hell which seems to be so out of character and actually universalism where actually that seems out of character of god as well both of those extremes either universalism um, or eternal torment seem to strip away the morality of of a god that's interested in in right and wrong there is right and there is wrong yep. so, okay we better um draw to a close it's a fascinating uh, discussion and uh with almost every topic that we we cover, uh, we almost always seem to land on Jesus. So we've done that again, uh, which is great. Um, so thank you very much, Dan, for being part of this uh, this conversation. And thank you to uh, to everyone who's, uh, who's listened. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you found it interesting. And as always, when you uh, are in your podcast app, then uh, rate or put a review uh, of us. It makes it easier for uh, people to find us. And uh, if you want to make a comment, go to our website, biblefeed.org, and our Facebook page uh, under Bible Feed. Look us up there and, uh, and follow us there. So thank you once again, Dan, and uh, we'll be back soon. Yeah, thanks, Paul. You've been listening to the Bible Feed podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're always keen to hear what you think, hear your questions or subjects you'd like to discuss. So get in touch with us uh, through our Facebook page or send us a message on our website at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey.